Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, MVC. Uh, it's good to see everybody this morning here in the Ritz Theater. If you're on the roof or joining us online, uh, we, we welcome you. Uh, we hope we have a good morning today. We get to talk about how God interacts with his people. That's what Storyline is about. This series is really uh, trying to help us look at different episodes and scenes and ways that God connects with us. Uh, how, so we can recognize his activity in the world and so that we can be aware of what he's doing and as we're going to learn today, to be able to celebrate that. I uh, want to say if you're a holdover from the F conference, we're so glad uh, to have you with us today. Uh, I've seen a couple of you back uh, for the first time in a long time this morning. That's awesome. Uh, and so we're going to celebrate. Today we're talking about celebration. If you have a Bible, Bible app, you can go ahead and get it open to John chapter 2. Um, our church name, New Vintage Church comes from three places. One is the wordplay of new and vintage, right, which is kind of a little bit of paradoxical, and I can remember people joking with us in the early days, well, which is it, new or vintage? It's both. Uh, the vintage part is our commitment to the historic Christian faith, okay? Uh, and the new is being willing to try new things, being willing to find new expressions of the historic Christian faith in our time and place, Okay, and then there are two scriptures that really, uh, from which our name emerged, and both of them have to do with winemaking. And if that makes you nervous, you're going to have a long morning, um, because that's the, the miracle that Jesus does in John chapter 2, his first public miracle, uh, is, is the second one, where he keeps the celebration continuing at a wedding where the wine had run out. The other is, I am the vine, you are the branches, John chapter 15, which is a winemaking imagery. And the idea there and what Jesus teaches us is that when we're connected to him, we can do anything. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so it, it's an expression of our desire to remain deeply connected to Christ in everything that we do, believing that God would channel the very power of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our church, and in our outreach. Okay, and then the other is this one, John chapter 2. And this is a text that made everybody real nervous when I was growing up, so I didn't hear a lot of, of preaching on it. Uh, when I became a preacher, I was nervous about it, so I kind of, you know, uh, mentioned it, but I didn't spend a lot of time arguing with anybody about it or dealing with this whole issue of what do you do with a situation where Jesus... Uh, turns water, uh, which nobody has a problem with water most of the time, and, and turns that into wine. And I was familiar with the debates about, oh, the wine must have been alcoholic or not alcoholic, and here's what's really going on, and yada, yada, yada. And I figured, you know, uh, well, okay, maybe it's easier to just stay away from it. When we started New Vintage Church, the very first text that I preached on in a real church service was this one, John 2. And I picked it because it had a lot to do with our name. And actually, the very first sermon series I ever did was actually called New Vintage Life. And it was a series on wine in the Bible, which is not an ode to wine itself. It's an ode to what wine represented, which in the ancient world was joy and celebration and hospitality. So this morning, as we look at Jesus' first public miracle, turning water into wine, um, we say this, where Jesus is the party never stops. So after John's grand opening, we talked about it last week, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and without Him nothing was made, okay? Like this big, weighty, cosmic, theological thing, okay? That that is certainly a piece of God, and a lot of people who really like that side of God have a hard time with this side of God, which is much more... Um, it, it, there's some levity to it. It's not as 
uh, you know, jaw-dropping in its own way. It seems like something almost that for, if you're a person that really appreciates the more contemplative side of church or, or you want people to take God seriously enough, makes you extremely nervous. Jesus' first miracle, though, is actually typical of the kind he performs on the earth. You would think that if he's going to do a miracle for his first one, he would make a show of it. Maybe walk to the Red Sea, part it again. Maybe destroy the earth in some other form, other than water, because God promised already he wasn't going to do it again. But that he would do something that would be very glorious and glamorous, something that would let you know, hey, the king is here. But this seems like a miracle he's not even planning to do. He's doing it almost as a favor to his mom. And many of the things that Jesus does in his encounters with people happen amidst the stuff of everyday life. They're really not done just in the synagogue or just on the Mount of Transfiguration or any of those kind of things. When he encounters a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, he's thirsty. He goes and gets a drink of water. There's a woman who he strikes up a conversation with, helped bring her to faith, and it converts the entire village. Right? They're, they're, the, the miracles of Jesus are magnificent. But they're magnificent in that he is, as we learned last week, the one through whom all this was created. So he's not shy of power. But he's also somebody who, at this very poignant moment, when his mom asks him to do a favor for the couple whose wedding is going on and they run out of wine, that he's not too big for that. And I want us to look at the symbolic nature of what it means that he does this. It all seems to begin at a wedding, uh, and, and it's, you kind of get the sense that Jesus and his mom and the apostles are kind of at the bad table at the wedding reception, right? It's the one in the back. It has no name cards on it. It's like in case somebody crashes the wedding, it's where you end up. They don't seem to be in the middle of everything. They seem to kind of be off in the corner. Here's what happens in John 2. We'll read verses 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, woman here is not like, woman. Okay, it's not that. It's, it, in fact, some of your translations will say, dear woman. Uh, dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Meaning, at this point, he isn't really launching a career of ministry yet. He's not out in public doing his miracles and beginning his public ministry yet. So, he says, my hour hasn't come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And by the way, if you're looking for a, uh, a motto for your life, uh, do whatever he tells you is a pretty good one, all right? Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's a lot, okay, 20, 30 gallons. That's uh, if you drive like a Suburban, um, you know, the gas tank in a Suburban, something like that. Okay, 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from. So keep in mind again, right? He doesn't even know that Jesus is the one doing this. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. So again, this is a miracle that the text says reveals his glory and the disciples believed in him. All right, 
So let's unpack it. Weddings. I've been to many of them. I had one of my own. In fact, how cute is that hostess that was out here earlier? That's my wife of 20 years. I'm not being a pervert, just so you know, it's my wife. Um, and, and we had a wedding. And when we planned that wedding, we spent, you know, like most people do, like a year uh, planning the wedding. And it's really over. You have about six hours total. You have the rehearsal, right, which is that affair where everybody gets together and everybody except, say, the mother of the bride uh, is having a tough time. She's on pins and needles, and thus the father of the bride is on pins and needles, and then you have the bride herself, and she's often on pins and needles, but the, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids are having the time of their life, and usually the groom do. The groom is usually off having a good time, all right? So we do that, bachelor party or bachelorette party that night, next morning you show up, you take some pictures, uh, and then the ceremony is usually, in most weddings, is 30 minutes long. It's really not that long. Uh, it feels longer than it is if you're in the crowd, but it's only th about 30 minutes long in most weddings, okay? Um, and then after that, you go, you have a reception. Everybody turns on 80s music or something for everybody to dance to. Uh, you have the rubber chicken and all the stuff they serve, and then you go home. They go off on a honeymoon, end of story, moving on. All right, well, in the ancient world, it wasn't that way at all. Weddings took often a week, not a few hours, a week, and they started with a meal, so the way it would work is you had kind of like the reception almost first. So everybody gets together, everybody has a big party, hey, we're celebrating what's about to take place. Then you had the ceremony. When the ceremony was over, they would take the bride and the groom, they would kind of parade them through the town, and people would shout and, and uh, celebrate. Then they would go to the groom's house, they would make their way to the groom's house, and everybody left, then they would consummate the marriage that night. And then after that, in kind of a strange twist, the next morning, they started kind of hosting basically like an open house, okay? So uh, for the next week, people would just show up to the house, knock on the door, hey, great job, here's your gift, and, and walk out, okay? It took a week. There was no honeymoon. There was no rehearsal. I mean, we, typical American fashion, we focus on the production of things, being very efficient and excellent with things. In the ancient world, it wasn't like that. Uh, it, was very, it was much more organic. It was very celebrative, and it was also focused on hospitality, not just celebrating the bride and the groom. They did that, but on the bride and the groom hosting others. It was a sacred duty to show hospitality in the ancient world. You know, now it's like, you know, if somebody runs out of ice cream or they run out of wine at a reception, everybody just goes home. Yeah, yeah, that stinks, and they go home. In the ancient world, that would have been like an, a, a big deal. That was an affront that was basically a way of saying, we didn't care enough about you to provide enough. So when you see this scene, okay, what you see is not this couple just like, oh, hey, everybody's not sloshed enough, so let's keep them going. It's not what's happening. It's about hospitality. It's about honor. And so this threatens to really, really hurt this special week for this couple. And so Jesus is not planning to do this. It doesn't seem. It's something where the wine runs out, and Jesus decides... In the act of creating more, not just any wine, by the way, the best that the, the host of the banquet has ever tasted, okay, that he's keeping the celebration going. When the wine had run out, Jesus shows up and he creates more. So for those of us that I mean, you don't get it, let me give you a couple other little quotes. These are from Jewish rabbis in antiquity. One said this, where there is no wine, there is no joy. 
And then 9 o'clock, everybody was saying amen over on this side of the building. But where there is no wine, there is no joy. In the Jewish Talmud, a rabbi by the name of B.T. Peshahim says, There is no joy without wine, since wine gladdens the heart of humanity. John says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother says to them, they have no more wine. Jesus says, my time hasn't come yet. Why, do you, why are you involving me? And then he just goes ahead and he does it. And when he takes, when, when the host takes the wine, I think it's kind of significant that he doesn't even know who did it. You ever wonder how many times you've experienced a miracle in your life and you don't even know that it was God that did it? You think you were that smart? You were that witty? Just good luck? He didn't even know who did it. Eventually, he found out. But at the beginning, he doesn't even know. You know, Jesus doesn't say, hey, everybody. He didn't clank a glass and say, hey, everybody, pay attention here. I am about to change this water into wine. He just does it. He just does it. And thus, the celebration continues. So let's think about the implications of this. Make sure there's enough wine at your wedding. No. Let's start here with celebration. Celebration is discipleship. Here's what I mean by that. Discipleship is really about following in the steps of someone, right? What I want to suggest to you this morning is that the God that we celebrated last week is high and lifted up, and the one we've sung about this morning, and the one that created everything around us, okay, that that God fundamentally is a celebrator. You can see it at the Garden of Eden. He creates Adam and Eve in this paradise for them to enjoy. They're naked. They're unashamed. They're given the entire garden to enjoy. God created it that way. At the end of time, when this all kind of comes to an end, the picture we're given in Revelation is of what? A wedding feast. You have celebration again. When Israel is delivered from Egypt, what we end up with is a sequence of celebrations that God orders them to observe. And when they do it, as we talked about when we did the study of Esther, a, a feast like Purim, you're not allowed to fast. Your job, you got one job, celebrate. You got one job, celebrate. When uh, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he talks about it like a, like a banquet, like a party where God is the host and he can't get anybody to show up because they're too preoccupied. He's hosting these parties. Jesus is referred to as a friend of sinners. One of the things that gets him in trouble uh, earlier in the Gospels is he's talking about John the Baptist. He says, look, when John came and he wouldn't eat or drink anything, you, you said he was nuts. Well, now I'm here and I'm eating and drinking and you call me a drunkard and a glutton. So pick a lane, he says. Or is it just about hating me as a celebrator? When the prodigal son returns... What's the father do? Throws a party. Jesus' first public miracle. What is it? To supply wine to a wedding where the wine is run out. I think we miss a lot when we don't understand the nature of God as celebrator. Uh, when I was growing up, there were a lot of arguments about whether or not the wine had alcohol in it or not. Okay? If, if there was no alcohol in it, this would be the first Jewish wedding in history where it didn't have it. Okay. <laughs> Secondly, you can tell by by what the host says that there probably was. He says, well, most of the time, when everybody's at this point of the wedding, they bring out this kind of wine. He implies that they're at that point, okay? And Jesus still does it. Now, I want to be very clear about something. This is not about that, okay? It is not about wine or whatever. But if you say, well, he just gave them basically the equivalent of a big pile of grape juice, then you miss something. You do miss it. Jesus is not about correcting the celebration that they're in. 
He's not. He's about helping it continue. This is not an ode to that. It's not an, uh, an endorsement of drunkenness or anything like that. Here's what it's an endorsement of. Celebration. Celebration. Hospitality. This story tells us a great deal about God. This first miracle preserves the celebratory atmosphere for this couple that has run out of hospitality, okay, or the capacity to celebrate in their culture. And so rather than watching the couple offend everybody that's there, Jesus takes, you know, these 20 to 30 gallon tanks and fills them with the best wine that anybody's ever tasted. So then the question becomes, okay, why is this in here? It's usually in there. The first question to ask about almost any story in the Bible is, what does this tell us about God? Because he's the hero of the story. He's the subject and the predicate. It's about him. What does this tell us about God, that God celebrates? If you remember the story, lost coin, lost sheep, prodigal son, all in the same chapter. At the end, there's a celebration. God likes celebrating. He commands people to do it because he knows that they won't do it otherwise. We have a tendency to morph from the people who are celebratory and celebrators. Over time, we continue to get more and more and more and more melancholy. We focus on the gloom and the doom. I'm going to suggest you March 12th or so of last year, the wine ran out here in the United States, really most around the world. And all of the things that in our lives we thought at that point were so great and so whatever, they were gone. They were taken away from us. And rather than necessarily say, okay, this is our opportunity to shine, a lot of churches chose a different path. They didn't see it as an opportunity to shine. They got sucked into it. And rather than say, hey, we serve a God who helps us continue to celebrate. We have an opportunity to be light in darkness in ways that we haven't seen before. We are going to choose that in our current situation, we're going to choose to remain bright and shining and pointing to God and giving people a reminder that, hey, you know what? There is a lot of, of pain around us right now, but that's not the end of the story. That we can tell you that, that right now we celebrate because we have knowledge at this watery grave of baptism that we, as we're dunking all these happy people into the Pacific, that that leads to the empty tomb of eternal life. And, and we know that as we're here and we're celebrating and we're singing and we're praying and we're preaching and we're doing all of those things, that, that there's a point. We're trying to highlight something that takes our head up. It lifts our head to something a little bit bigger than the moment. And so right here, we're, so we, we tried, we took, our, took it upon ourselves to say, we're going to try and show as much light as we can. And so down this street right here, which, which, which certainly needs it, this can be a really dark street at times, we, you know, going down, trying to share a little grace here, bring a little joy there, trying to do things that point somewhere else, not just to ourselves, but to point to God who is greater, the one in whose name we celebrate. We got a 10-year anniversary coming up. We're going to celebrate. Look, I could, yeah, Amen. I could sit up here and I can tell you every dark story we've got. We got them. Every church does. I mean, times and things were rough. I mean, talking like rough, like curl up in a ball, suck your thumb rough, like rough, okay? And yet, what a mistake that would be. What a shame it would be to take that kind of anniversary and that kind of celebration and focus on what we think we didn't get done or what we missed or what bad things happened. In my sleep, I can hear the voice of a hundred somber church guys at the mic at different times articulating and using the word celebration in a, the most depressing, morose way you can imagine. 
Good morning, church. We are here today to celebrate the God who brings good news. You're like, whoa, you know, like, um, and, and I, I don't want to suggest to you that there's not a time to be very, very serious about things. I just think that, in my experience, most churches don't have a problem being serious. If I gave you a word association game, and I used terms like celebration, party, not many people would say, oh, church, you're talking about church. If I said somber, serious, reflective, you might say, oh, funeral. And you're like, no, church, right? So all I'm saying to you is, we can, there's a time for all of that, okay? And I'm, I'm telling you, look, I've been at, I've, I've buried infants, I've been at crime scenes, I've watched, I've been to suicide scenes. I've seen some awful stuff in my line of work. And you know what? None of it changes the fact that even though there is trouble in the world that we're in, there's also reason to take heart because he's overcome the world. So when the wine runs out, okay, as long as he's there, as long as he's there, then the wine never runs out. The party never stops. Now, I don't mean there that everybody's going around giggling all the time. What I'm saying is every Christian, every Christian should die with big crow's feet around their eyes from smiling enough. We call them crow's feet if you're cynical. Smile lines, I think, if you're an optimist. But honestly, I, I've decided that when I, when I go to be with God forever, first of all, if I'm not comfortable with celebration, I'm not going to enjoy that very much because that's all we're doing. So when I go down, I want the morticianer to look at my face and not be able to hide the fact that and when people go by my casket, if that's what we do at the funeral, I want them to go, man, that dude must have smiled a lot. Look at them crow's feet around his eyes. I want to have them. Now, nature's helping me along, but at the same time, I want to be able to, I want to, be able to laugh. I want, to, I, want to, I want people to go when they think of, of the life that I led, the sermons I preached, uh, the way I raised my kids. I don't want them to think about somberness. Um melancholy, or sad. I want them to think he preached good news and he tried to live out good news. That's what I want. I think that's what God wants. God is not some austere Alfred Hitchcock in the sky. He is a celebrator. He celebrates. That's who he is. Again, in the parable of the great banquet, the problem isn't that God doesn't want to celebrate. He throws a big bash. And the problem is he can't get anybody to show up. We always think that our job, if we're going to celebrate, is to get God out of the room. Oh, no, 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 no. If you're celebrating and you don't want God in the room, you're celebrating the wrong way. Knock that off. You ought to want God in the room because, hate to break it to you, he's there anyway. I mean, you can't, like, get him out of the room. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. And if you're a Christian, he's in here too. So when, when you're celebrating, God is enjoying your enjoyment like Eden, like the festivals that he institutes, whether it's Passover or Purim or Tabernacle or Booths or any of those festivals. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about Esther where they forbid people to fast? You will eat because their propensity is to say, oh, we're celebrating something having to do with God. Well, we should all fast. No, 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 not today. There's a very strange story. I'll, I'll spare it because I'm running long here. But 
there's a, an amazing story where God, he does command people to tithe, but there's a particular occasion where he says, you know what, this time, don't tithe. I want you to take that money and spend it on throwing a huge bash for yourselves and celebrate. Okay? Now, the problem we've got is that that's all we do, and we never give God anything. But in that case, he says, no, no, no. Right now, we're all going to celebrate this. And they throw a big bash. Isaiah 25, it's viewed as, uh, you know, the presence of, of wine uh, that's given there. Isaiah tells the people, I know it's tough. I know it's rough. But you know what? Someday, right here on this mountain, God's going to throw a big old bash full of aged wine, the good stuff. In other cases, when he's trying to help them understand that God has left the building, he's not happy, he says, guess what? There's not going to be any wine for a while. Okay? So when we look at this text, there's so much more here than just, oh, hey, they ran out of a thing, and then, and then Jesus kind of goes to Bevmo and like brings everything in. That's not what happens. This is about the character and the nature of God and why Jesus was sent to earth in the first place. He did it bringing, hear me out, good news, gospel, the greatest news that would ever be told. And so my job then is to walk around and not say, wipe that smile off your face. I got good news. <laughs> and the church then becomes as a reflection of who, the, who they think God is. Acts like a dysfunctional homeowners association as they go about their business. Knock that off. Paint colors wrong. Wipe the smile off your face. Oh, we're here for, don't, well, we're, we're here for the good of the community. Here's your parking ticket. Hey, you're not supposed to park on the street after eight. And that becomes the nature of the church, and it's a reflection of who they think he is. Once we get that, and we understand that God sent Jesus with good news, okay, us with good news, that he's the kind of God who helps the celebration continue when the wine has run out, then that changes our witness. God shouldn't have to leave the building for us to celebrate. He wants to be there. And if I want to celebrate without God, that means I either don't understand celebration or I don't understand who God is. Number two, our joy is our witness. Irma Bombeck tells this story. She says this. She says, in church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around smiling at everyone. He wasn't gurgling or spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just smiling. Finally, his mother jerked him about and in a stage whisper that could be heard in a little theater off Broadway, said, stop grinning. You're in a church. And with that, she gave him a belt on his hind side. And as the tears rolled down his cheeks, added, that's better, and returned to her prayers. I wanted to grab this child with the tear-stained face close to me and tell him about my God, the happy God, the smiling God, the God who had to have a sense of humor to have created the likes of us. <laughs> okay? We must not grow in our ability. We, we must not only just grow in our ability to, to, to celebrate. We have to grow in our willingness to allow others to celebrate and to help them do so. And again, I, I, I have great reverence for, I mean, I love Westminster Abbey. I love Princeton Chapel. I love these places that are big, beautiful cathedrals and, and, and uh, provide these beautiful environments for us to be able to come together and be reflective. There's a time for that. It's important. We do it every week during communion here at NBC. Most of the time, though, it's not being somber churches struggle with. In fact, that just becomes, uh, you know, they are not fluent in celebration. We are not fluent in celebration. I mean, 
I, I lament assemblies where, um, you know, a more celebratory tone is called for. It's maybe even obvious, but people are not allowed to express it. You know, there are people that, that you know, take offense at celebration. I, I, I sometimes will go to different churches and speak at different things, and it's amazing how different the culture is, what, how they feel, how they're taught to, to, to hear a sermon. And so you can get up, and of course, we preachers always think we're funnier than we are. We're not that funny, right? Um, but you can tell a joke that, that in the first 19 churches, people laugh. And then you get to this next one, and it's like that you can sense they're upset at you for attempting to be funny. And you just think to yourself, you go, okay, so if I'm coming in to this place, and I'm trying to, and I'm trying to, 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 to tell them about good news, or I want to hear good news, or I, I hear them talk about abundant life, as though, you know, they're like a Droopy the Dog's drunk uncle or something up there, just spewing somberness everywhere. Nothing has a bright light. It's only about, you know, and even when light and darkness is talked about, the emphasis is on how dark things are. So we, if we're lucky, might be one little flicker of light in a very dark, desolate place. Yeah, okay, that's fine. There are even times where it certainly feels that way. No question about that. However, the idea is that the one who is in us is greater than the one who's in the world. So if all we do is talk about how great the world is and how dark the darkness is without talking about the power of the light, then we've missed something. You understand? So here, when he's doing this miracle, it's not just this little trivial thing or whatever. He's reminding us that ultimately, A, he has control of things. Wine runs out, we'll make more. As far as celebration and all that, he's giving us something that reminds us that joy, there's a witness to it, okay? I'm, I am thrilled to be part of a church that celebrates really, really, really well. We built this building to be a headquarters for celebration in this area, celebrations of all sorts of kinds, okay? But I don't want us, sisters and brothers, to continue to, to play into this kind of stereotype about Christians as though... That church is the place that joy goes to die. No, it's not. Church is where you meet Jesus the Savior. Church ought to be the place where you encounter the good news. And when you do, that will change your life. And then what you find yourself doing is you can celebrate almost anywhere because you realize he's wherever you go. So even when things are awful and painful and dark, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We grieve differently. We grieve as those who have hope. And so we understand when I'm standing over, a, uh, I'm standing at a graveside of a Christian brother or sister who has passed away, I can say and believe that what's happening right now is really just a, it's a moment in time. They're really just asleep, if you use biblical language. And so I grieve, but I don't, I don't grieve as those who have no hope. You know, at every wedding, there's always, there's always people that show up kind of bitter, uh, they didn't break down into two kinds. The report card people, you know, mm, music, mm, A minus. Bride's gown, uh, C. Uh, <laughs> uh, officiant, mm, D. Uh, a minus on this, B plus on that. And then you have the bitter people. They might be bitter because they're alone. Weddings remind them they're alone, and so they don't like weddings. Uh, sometimes they used to date the bride or the groom, and now they got apples they got to eat. 
and they got to sit there through the service and watch them be happy, all right? And so you have these, um, these different kinds of people that, that show up, and churches can do that. You can have people that do the same. You know what? Hey, you know what? Bless his heart, Tim was a little off his game today, but, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to evaluate that. And, you know, Riley, you know, I, I like it better when she does this. And, and hey, well, this is what's going on. And, hey, you know what? The bathrooms, the, the, the trash can was actually half full of paper towels already. It would be nice if they actually, like, you know, once a year clean the building, right? <laughs> Write that down. Homeowners association mentality. Does that accurately reflect the God that we're preaching? I mean, if he was that way, which of us would stand a chance? If he looks down at my life and he's, uh, you know what, bless his heart, um, prayer life, mm, see, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bible knowledge, I give him like an A minus, you know, he's not bad, da, 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 and he goes through. Which of us could stand if he kept a record of our transgressions? None. And that's the good news, sisters and brothers, is that God is not the big homeowners association in the sky. That he's full of grace and that he loves to see his children enjoy things. That's why he gives the Sabbath. He says, one day a week, knock it off because you used to be slaves and I delivered you. And the way you celebrate, you don't have to work. And by the way, nobody else works either. Anybody under your care, they don't work either. Go do something that celebrates the goodness of God. So sisters and brothers, all I'm saying is we have to be careful how our witness is being uh, how we're carrying ourselves and the messages we're communicating, either overtly or subliminally. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, once said, a man who has no joy about him had better be an undertaker. He will never succeed in influencing the living. And then he went on to say, there are more flies caught with honey than with vinegar, and there will be more souls led to heaven by a man who wears heaven in his face than by one who bears Sheol in his looks. Jesus made himself at home in celebrations, and I think God would love to see us do the same. Got to hustle. We need to live a life of celebration, sisters and brothers. St. Patrick's Day, 2000. Everybody's wearing green. All the elementary school's kids are pinching each other. All the stuff that normally goes with St. Patrick's Day. Okay? There was one place in the world where nobody was celebrating St. Patrick's Day. It was in Ireland. They had some sort of breakout that day uh, or that, at that point in time. Uh, that meant that everybody in Ireland was kind of on lockdown. So they were spaced out and they weren't doing it. So you got people celebrating St. Patrick's Day in like Hong Kong and, and places like that. And we have no idea in the States what we're really doing with St. Patrick's Day. We just know it involves green uh, music and, and, and we need to make sure our kids are wearing green that day. That's all we really know. And after that, we know it's, we're supposed to have fun. And so we do. But isn't it ironic that in Ireland, the one place that actually seems to know what's happening on St. Patrick's Day, they weren't celebrating at all. And I wonder... If those of us who are now, you see where I'm going to go with this, who actually have a reason to celebrate, if we don't do it, who in the world can? We have every reason in the world to celebrate. Celebration was created in the heart and the mind of God. The whole creation was birthed in such a way that we could celebrate the goodness of God in the Garden of Eden. And guess what? At the end of time, you know what happens there? We end up at another wedding feast. And this time, Jesus is not at the back table. He's the groom. And guess who we are? Not just a friend of the groom. We're the bride. And so it ends right back there with celebration. All the way from the beginning, all the way to eternity. It stays the same. It's the same today. Those of us 
who have the most to celebrate need to get on with it. We need to go ahead and start articulating, not just with our words, but with our actions, that we serve a God who is good. The news we have to share is good. Does that mean we do cartwheels and backflips everywhere we go? It does not. There's a time to be serious, a time to be somber. When we grieve, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve as those who grieve in the shadow of the empty tomb and the things that are to come. And the worst parties are the ones where the food's gone, no one has a plan for whatever is going to go on, the music's terrible, no one's having any fun. And I'm going to suggest to you that we live in a world that doesn't have as much fun as it used to. Joy is in a little shorter supply than it has been. Even the funny stuff's not that funny anymore. You know, I, I used to go to bed watching the late night comedians. I'd, I'd tape their monologues, just the monologues, and I would go to bed watching them and laughing because I told him, I said, I want to go to bed laughing. It's a good way to go to bed. You sleep better, right? So I'm just clicking it and like watching, <laughs> you know, and out I go. <laughs> now, now, now it's like I can't do it because I find myself getting mad when I do it. It's not funny anymore. And so now I go to bed with the glow of my cell phone, looking at social media. What a blessing that is. You know, phone hits you in the face because you're falling asleep. It wakes you up, and eventually you do it. And so now I go to bed realizing, oh, the world's full of darkness. Yeah, 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 it sure is. It sure is. And that's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're here. God put us here. The God who keeps that going. And because, I mean, you remember... When, when, when Jesus ascends and he gives the mission of the church, puts it in full throttle and aims it in the church and acts as they're going through all the awkwardness of trying to do life without Jesus walking the earth among them, they're getting beaten, thrown in jail, persecuted, outlawed, on the run, shipwrecked. And you know what? Paul and Silas end up in jail. What do they do? They sing. How in the world do you sing in a Roman prison? Well, you have enough joy in your heart that you realize I might be in prison. God's not. And it makes you sing. And if I die in here, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And you hold out hope that at some point God is going to break through in his time, in his way, and show himself, show his glory, hopefully through you. But if he won't, he may do it through something else. It might be through earthquakes that open the cell doors. It might be through the conversion of jailers. It might be through a whole bunch of other things that go on. But God is on the move. And if we believe those things, then it should show up in what we do and who we are. Looking around the room, I've baptized several of you many of you actually, in this room. I don't remember one of you coming out of the water sad. Uh, there's a reason that people put their arms in the air, they smile, building them crow's feet on the side for you. You hit your 40s, nature helps you too. But you're, you're excited and you're happy because you know God is working in your life. You know your life has changed and it won't be the same again. You know that you got every reason to celebrate. If we can't contribute anything else, 
to this world. We can preach good news, and we can show the world how to stay joyful, how to have joy, how to choose joy. And so Jesus, in this little miracle, it's like this little, if you're not careful, it can seem parenthetical almost, but he gives us a little bit of a foreshadowing to another banquet that happens again at the end. I alluded to it, the end of Revelation this banquet of the bridegroom and the, and, and the marriage banquet of the lamb. You think the wine's ever running out there? I doubt it. And that's a celebration that's going to go a very long time. So we are here in the middle of a very, very difficult time. I know some of you have lost jobs. I know some of you have been sick. I know some of your loved ones have been sick. We've had people in our church that have been very, very sick, are still very, very sick. We have people that have been strong and have really helped drag some of us through this thing. And we've been torn between how to be very serious and very joyful at the same time. And that's just part of what being in the church is about. Discernment. Discerning to gather and the way you make those decisions and the way that you conduct yourself ought to be rooted. It ought to start with who is the God that we, we preach? Who is the God we believe in? And once we get there, it's hard to not look to the heavens and go, I think God would have something hopeful to say. What do you want us to do? And that question and that answer, sisters and brothers, is where, where we find ourselves right now, right? And so we're saying, hey, world, uh, there's a lot of bad news out there. We offer you some good news. Which doesn't change those headlines. It just puts them in perspective, in context. And we invite them to join us. And hopefully it's not an abundant life. You know, it's, it, it, it reflects what we were put on this earth to do and the heart of the God who put us here. We're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning. We'd like to invite uh, the band back up. And as we do, <clears throat> we usually do this as a very contemplative moment. Uh, the good news is uh, those of you who are like, don't ruin my moment. Well, it's not your moment, but that's okay. We're not going to ruin it anyway. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to take it instead of doing it. Picture it like the wedding at Cana. A second ago, you didn't have anything in your hand. Now you do. <laughs> the Lord has provided uh, if, you, if you didn't get any, a bread and cup on the way in, and a, I called it a baggie at the first service. It really, my shame is still with me from that. It's not a baggie. It's a, something. It's a bag. Some very masculine bag. <laughs> so uh, if, you, if you'd like one, just put your hand in the air. We'll bring you one. Okay. But, but when he says to us, uh, do this in remembrance of me, the, the, the G, part of Jesus we want to remember today is Jesus the Celebrator. Uh, the one who keeps the celebration going when the wine has run out. Um, so, in his name, let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, for the times that we've been more somber than we ought, we ask your forgiveness. Father, for, uh, for the times we've messed around when we probably should have been more serious, we ask your forgiveness. But really, Father, we know that we live in a very dark time. It feels very dark, but Father, we also trust the light of the world, Jesus. We follow him. 
And so, Father, as he was considered a friend of sinners, so we want to be. Father, as he was often seen at parties, in people's homes, eating and drinking with them, Father, may we do the same. Father, here in this place, may this building be known as a place of celebration. May people come to hear the good news here in this place. And Father, out beyond the building, far beyond the building, in the schools, uh, in uh, the neighborhoods, Father, all around us, Father, may the good news be preached through the way that we live so that the people will go, He is good. God is good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.